Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to episode 273 of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World, where we look at mysteries from the twin perspectives of faith and reason. In this episode, we're talking about a strange reported cryptid known as Flying Snakes. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today is Jimmy Akin. Hey, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. Today, we're going cryptid hunting. We'll be searching for a type of cryptid or hidden animal, and the cryptid we'll be looking for is a type of snake. And of course, to quote Indiana Jones, why did it have to be snakes? Snakes are famous as creatures that don't have legs. They're perceived as creepy, crawly little critters that slither along the ground. But while snakes lack legs, there are ancient reports of snakes that had wings and they could fly through the air, making them especially dangerous. What's more, one ancient historian reported seeing heaps of their bones with his own eyes. What could have been the basis of what he saw? What's behind the strange tales of flying serpents? And could they actually be real? That's what we'll be talking about on this episode of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World. Jimmy, where does today's mystery begin? With the Greek historian Herodotus, he lived in the 5th century BC. He was born around 484 BC and he died around 425 B.C., when he would have been about 60 years old. He was from the Greek city of Halicarnassus, which is now the modern port city of Bodrum in southwestern Turkey. The name Halicarnassus may sound familiar, because about a century after Herodotus's time, they built the famous mausoleum of Halicarnassus there, and in antiquity, it was named one of the seven wonders of the world. Unfortunately, the mausoleum of Halicarnassus no longer exists. Of the seven wonders of the world, only the Great Pyramid of Giza still exists. But the mausoleum left a lasting legacy. In addition to its fame as one of the seven wonders, it also gave us the word mausoleum. In antiquity, it was known as the tomb of Mausolus, after the guy who was buried there. Mausolus was a ruler in the Achaemenid Empire, and after he died, he was buried above the ground in a massive tomb. So the tomb of Mausolus came, be known, came to be known as the mausoleum. And today the word mausoleum continues to refer to tombs that are built above the ground. Now, all of that was after Herodotus's time. So what was he famous for? Herodotus is famous as a historian and a geographer. In fact, he's referred to as the father of history. The title was bestowed on him by the first century Roman orator and letter writer Cicero. Uh, this is because Herodotus had written a book called Historiae in Greek. Uh, it was written around 430 BC when Herodotus was around 55 years old. In Greek, the word historia originally meant inquiry, and later it meant story or account. So you could translate historiae as inquiries, accounts, or stories. But we just bring it directly into English as histories. Herodotus's book became a template for later kinds of writing. Other people started doing similar work. And so Herodotus is known as the father of history. And what did Herodotus's histories cover? Among other things, 
It covered the rise of the Persian Empire and how it had conquered Herodotus's own Greek ancestors a century earlier. But it's based on information that he collected from a lot of different places. Herodotus traveled extensively, and he asked questions wherever he went. So he has a reputation among historians as a kind of inquisitive, highly engaged tourist who wanted to learn about wherever he went. And he both records and distinguishes what he saw with his own eyes from what he was told by local people. He begins the histories this way. Here are the results of the inquiry carried out by Herodotus of Halicarnassus. The purpose is to prevent the traces of human events from being erased by time and to preserve the fame of the important and remarkable achievements produced by both Greeks and non-Greeks. Among the matters covered is, in particular, the cause of the hostilities between Greeks and non-Greeks. Despite the fact that he's known as the father of history, not everybody has been a fan of Herodotus. The accuracy of the histories has been challenged, and some have even referred to Herodotus rather ominously as the father of lies. In addition to modern critics, some of his critics were in the ancient world, like the comic playwright Aristophanes of Athens, who mocked him in his plays, and the Athenian historian Thucydides, who dismissed him as a storyteller. But Herodotus apparently honestly reported what he saw and what he had been told. He didn't always believe what he was told, but he still reported it, and he left it up to his readers to make up their own minds. Part of the reason that some critics may have dismissed Herodotus is that in the ancient world, travel was very difficult, so it was difficult to investigate and verify things, and people might just dismiss things that they read in Herodotus because they couldn't check them out. But as science, including history and archaeology, has been progressing, more and more of what Herodotus said has turned out to be true, and his reputation has been increasing. Some of my favorite scholars are big fans of Herodotus, like Dr. Bob Breyer, the Egyptologist who I interviewed back in episodes 240 on the Egyptian afterlife, and in, again in episode 241 on mummies. He's a big fan of Herodotus and treats him with respect. Another is the historian Adrian Mayer, who says this about him in her book, Flying Snakes and Griffin Claws. My favorite ancient writer is Herodotus, the insatiably curious Greek historian from Persian-ruled Halicarnassus, Bodrum, Turkey. Journeying to exotic lands to see the sites, he interviewed non-Greek-speaking peoples about their history and customs, and captivated the Greeks with his histories, written about 460 BC. Herodotus reported what he observed and what locals told him, including contradictory information, and often reserved judgment about veracity, leaving it up to his readers to ponder. To my mind, the fact that Herodotus recorded strange claims, investigated them to the extent he could, and ultimately left it up to his audience to decide what they thought, kind of makes Herodotus the patron historian of Jimmy Akin's mysterious world. So I like him a lot. He's my kind of guy in those respects. Adrian Mayer continues, As he traveled around Egypt, visiting the famous attractions and marvels, talking with priests and guides at each locale, Rumors of snakes with wings piqued his curiosity. I went to try to get more information about the flying snakes, wrote Herodotus. Specifically, Herodotus wrote about the flying snakes in two places in the histories. In Book 2, he's describing the different types of snakes in Egypt, and he says, In Thebes, there are sacred snakes which never hurt a human being. They are small and have two horns growing from the tops of their heads. When they die, 
they are buried in the sanctuary of Zeus, since it is Zeus to whom they are sacred. This kind of snake, the horned viper, is not one of the flying ones, but it's often seen in Egyptian hieroglyphs. It appears so frequently because it represents the sound of the letter F. So to remember that, I imagine putting my hand down and feeling a horned viper. It's a creepy way to remember the sound of the hieroglyph, but it's often the silliest and scariest mnemonic devices that make it easiest to remember things. The hieroglyph can also represent the sound of the letter V, which you can remember because it looks like a viper. Incidentally, both sounds are produced by blowing air between your lips. Uh, the difference is that you turn on your vocal cords when you say the V sound, but you leave them off when you say the F sound. So linguists would say that the V sound is voiced while the F sound is unvoiced because you leave your vocal cords off. The scientific name for this snake, the horned viper, is Serastes serastes. They're also known as the Saharan horned viper and the desert horned viper, and they do indeed have little projections on their heads that look kind of like horns. Herodotus is also correct that they're not very harmful to humans. They are venomous, but they're not very aggressive, and when they do bite, it's not that common for a human to die as a result, though it would be incorrect to say that they never hurt a human. Herodotus is also right that they were linked to Zeus. In fact, the Greek word kerastes, from which we get their scientific name, means the one who mixes, which was an epithet for Zeus. Uh, the same word also means equipped with horns or horned in Greek, and they apparently were considered sacred to Zeus. After discussing the horned viper, Herodotus then turns to discussing the flying snakes. I went to the part of Arabia fairly near the city of Buto to find out about winged snakes. When I got there, I saw countless snake bones and spines. There were heaps and heaps of spines there large, medium-sized, and smaller ones. The place where all these backbones are scattered about on the ground is a narrow pass linking hills to a great plain which joins the Egyptian plain. The story goes that at the beginning of spring, these winged snakes fly from Arabia towards Egypt, but birds, ibises, meet them there at the pass and do not allow them past, but kill them. It is because the ibis does this that the Egyptians value the birds so highly according to the Arabians, and the Egyptians agree that this is why they value these birds. We'll have more to say about the geographical location that Herodotus is describing, but I should point out that while modern Egypt and modern Saudi Arabia don't exactly share a border, they're separated by the Gulf of Aqaba, which branches off from the Red Sea. In the ancient world, they didn't have modern borders, though, and the region of Arabia was envisioned as coming right up to Egypt. And Herodotus says that he saw a huge quantity of the bones of the flying snakes, which he says originate in Arabia and fly towards Egypt, except ibises consider them as prey, making the ibis birds valuable to the Egyptians. And Herodotus apparently heard of the bird's snake-killing value from both Arabians and Egyptians. Now, there's more than one kind of ibis, and Herodotus describes the kind that he has in mind. Here is a description of the ibis that attacks the flying snakes. It is pitch black all over, and it has the legs of a crane and a very hooked beak, 
It is about the size of a corn crake. That is what the black ibises are like, which are the ones that fight the snakes. But there are two kinds of ibis, and the other kind, which one is more likely to come across in places inhabited by human beings, is different. It has no feathers anywhere on its head and neck, and its plumage is completely white, except for its head, neck, the tips of its wings, and the very end of its tail, all of which are pitch black. Its legs and beak are like those of the other kind. There are actually three types of ibises in Egypt, and Herodotus mentions two of them. The first kind he describes is known as the northern bald ibis. Most ibises are wading birds that hunt their prey on beaches and in marshes, like the marshes of the Nile Delta, but not the northern bald ibis. Instead, this species tends to inhabit desert regions, like the one where Herodotus says he saw the flying snake bones. He's correct that they are pitch black all over, that they have legs like a crane, and they have a very hooked beak. Herodotus says that they're about the size of a bird that this translation calls the corncrake. The Greek word uh, he uses is crax. Unfortunately, we, we don't know what the crax was, so we don't know how big they were, but we do know how big northern bald ibises are. They're about 30 inches long, with a wingspan of about 50 inches, so a little more than four feet, and they weigh between two and three pounds. The second type of ibis Herodotus describes is the African sacred ibis. It is a wading bird, so it would have frequented the marshes in the Nile Delta, where many Egyptians lived. Not many lived in the deserts, where you'd find the northern bald ibis, so Herodotus would be correct that you'd be more likely to come across the sacred ibis where humans live. He's also correct that this bird has no feathers on its head or on its neck, which is different than the northern bald ibis, which at least had feathers on its neck. And he's correct that most of its feathers are white, but its head, the tips of its wings, and its tail are black. So all that checks out. The third type of Egyptian ibis is the glossy ibis. From a distance, these birds appear to be of a solid color, and from a distance, they look very dark. That actually could be why Herodotus doesn't mention them. He or his sources may have lumped them in with the northern bald ibis because of their dark color when seen at a distance. So the, the glossy ibis is also a possible candidate for the flying snake killers. But if you see a glossy ibis up close and in good light, you can tell that most of their feathers are purplish or maroon, a kind of dark red with some dark green on their heads, wingtips, and tails. In any event, Herodotus is accurately describing real birds that really do live in Egypt, and he says one of them attacks and kills the flying snakes. So the accuracy of his description of these birds lends some credibility to the idea of the flying snakes. Finally, Herodotus gives us a description of the flying snakes themselves. The snakes are similar in shape to water snakes. Rather than proper feathered wings, they have wing-like membranes, which are not too dissimilar from those of a bat. That completes my account of the sacred animals of Egypt. So in thinking about the flying snakes, don't imagine them having feathered wings like birds. Instead, they have featherless membranes, which Herodotus compares to the wings of a bat. Herodotus returns to the subject of flying snakes in Book 3 of the Histories, where he writes, Arabia is the most southerly inhabited land, and it is the only place in the world which produces frankincense, myrrh, cassia, cinnamon, and rock rose resin.
None of these are easy for the Arabians to get, except myrrh. They collect frankincense by burning storax resin, which Phoenicians export to Greece. Gathering frankincense requires the burning of storax because every single frankincense-producing tree is guarded by large numbers of tiny dappled winged snakes. These are the snakes which invade Egypt, and only the smoke of burning storax resin drives them away from the trees. Frankincense is a kind of tree resin. Uh, when it dries out, it's used to make things like incense and perfume, and it comes from a tree known as Boswellia sacra. So Herodotus says that in Arabia, the flying snakes live around the Boswellia trees, making them difficult to approach. He says that the Arabians burn storax resin to drive the tiny winged snakes away from the trees. Storax is another type of tree resin, um, which is extracted from a tree known as the Oriental sweet gum or Turkish sweet gum. And like any aromatic resin, it would produce a scent that could drive away the flying snakes from the frankincense trees. The flying snakes also had prodigious breeding powers in keeping with the huge pile of bones that Herodotus saw. He writes, the Arabians also claim that the whole world would be overrun by these snakes if they were not liable to something similar to what I know happens to vipers, too. Divine providence is wise, as one would expect, and it looks as though it has arranged things so that all timid and edible creatures produce young in large quantities, because otherwise they might be eaten into extinction, while all fierce and dangerous creatures produce young in small quantities. Hares, for instance, are hunted by all wild animals and birds of prey, and by man too, and so they are very prolific. Hares are the only creatures that conceive while pregnant. A hare can be carrying fetuses in her womb at various stages of development, some with fur, some still bald, some in the process of taking shape, and some being conceived. That is what happens in this sort of case. But on the other hand, a particularly strong and brave creature, like a lioness, gives birth only once a lifetime to a single cub because she expels her womb along with the cub. The reason for this is that while the cub is in the womb, it begins to move around, and since its claws are far sharper than those of any other animal, it scratches the womb, and eventually, as the cub grows, it rips it to shreds until by the time it is due to be born, the womb has been completely destroyed. Here, Herodotus is engaging in a little biology or zoology in keeping with the scientific ideas of his day, or rather the ideas of natural philosophy, as science was then called. But the science of our day is somewhat better. Herodotus is correct that prey animals are typically born in much larger numbers than predators are. Prey animals like rabbits can't really defend themselves, and so lots and lots of them need to be born for their species to survive, since many of the offspring will end up becoming a lunch. On the other hand, predators like lions can defend themselves, so not as many of them need to be born for their species to survive. Furthermore, you don't really want tons of predators to be born because if there were too many, they would run out of lunches and starve. So he's right about that. Aristotle proposed that hares can become pregnant while they are pregnant. And he was right. Biologists have recently confirmed that hares can acquire a new pregnancy while one pregnancy is already in progress, although unlike tribbles, they're not actually born pregnant. However, what's inaccurate in what Herodotus says is the idea that lionesses 
only have a single cub during their lifetimes. Actually, lionesses can have between 8 and 18 cubs over a lifetime, and about half of them will survive in the wild. Still, not bad sciencing for 2,400 years ago. Herodotus then discusses the reproductive cycle of the flying snakes. The same goes for vipers and winged Arabian snakes. If they fulfilled their natural potential, so many would be born that they would make human life impossible. As things are, however, when they are mating in couples and the male is in the middle of his act, the female gets a grip on his neck and hangs on relentlessly until she is bitten right through it. So the male snake dies in the way I have just described. But the female pays for what she has done to the male, because while their offspring are still in the womb, they avenge their father by eating their way through their mother's belly, which is how they make their entry into the world. By contrast, other snakes are not a threat to human life, so they hatch their young out of eggs in large quantities. In any case, there are not as many winged snakes as there appear to be. It is just that they are concentrated in Arabia and nowhere else, whereas vipers, for instance, can be found in every country in the world. Here, Herodotus refers to two behaviors that are observed in some species in zoology. The first is when two animals are mating and one kills the other. Usually it's the female that kills the male because the female needs to survive to lay the eggs or gestate the young. And they don't typically just kill the males and leave them alone. They typically cannibalize them to get nutrients. This behavior is observed in a wide variety of lesser animals, including insects, arachnids, and even some crabs. It occurs, for example, in the insect species known as the Chinese mantis, and it's famously reported as occurring in black widow spiders. In fact, that seems to be why they're called black widows, because they're black and they eat their mates and thus make themselves widows. However, the prevalence of this behavior in black widows appears to be somewhat exaggerated. A lot of the tests done to confirm it were done in cages where, after mating, the male spider had no way of escaping. And it may not have been that the female was deliberately eating her mate. She may have just been eating any creature that was available, and the male couldn't escape, and so she ate him. But the behavior does occur in spiders, in, including in black widows, and Herodotus says it occurs in flying snakes, which is a little surprising. I'm not familiar with it happening with anything in the snake family, but we'd have to identify the species to know for sure. What's the other behavior that Herodotus mentions the flying snakes displaying? The other behavior is the flying snakes give birth to young live instead of laying eggs, and the young eat their way out to consume the mother. This behavior is known as matrophagy, from Greek roots that mean to consume the mother, and it is found in a variety of species, including some insects, arachnids, pseudoscorpions, nematode worms, and cachillian amphibians, which are amphibians that are shaped like worms or snakes. The fact that snake-shaped amphibians sometimes display matrophagy could be the basis for the idea that the flying snakes do it. But there's also another possibility, because there are three species of snake in Egypt that do give birth to live young rather than laying eggs. They're the spitting cobra, the nerodia water snake, and the sand boa. These snakes, though, don't actually practice matrifagy, and they do actually have eggs, but the eggs incubate inside their bodies. So 
people would see them giving birth to live young instead of hatching eggs, and that could have led them to think that the snakes were eating their way out. In any event, until we know what species the flying snakes are, we really wouldn't be able to tell what their reproductive behaviors are. Does anybody besides Herodotus mention the flying snakes, or is it just him? Oh, no. Other ancient authors also mention them. Uh, Herodotus's references are the most famous, but they are mentioned by other authors. Some of these seem to just be copying from Herodotus, but others seem to have independent sources of information. For example, some authors uh, refer to the flying snakes forming great swarms in the sky, which is something Herodotus doesn't mention, though he does mention them flying towards Egypt at the beginning of springtime. One author that mentions the flying snakes who may surprise you is in the Bible. It's the prophet Isaiah. He mentions the flying snakes at least twice. First, in Isaiah chapter 14, he writes, Rejoice not, O Philistia, all of you, that the rod that struck you is broken. For from the serpent's root will come forth an adder, and its fruit will be a flying, fiery serpent. Then, in chapter 30, he writes, An oracle on the beasts of the Negeb, Through a land of trouble and anguish, from where come the lioness and the lion, the adder and the flying fiery serpent, they carry their riches on the backs of donkeys and their treasures on the humps of camels to a people that cannot profit them. The original prophet Isaiah lived in the 8th century BC, which was about 300 years before Herodotus, who lived in the 5th century BC. Some think that the latter portions of Isaiah's book were written by one or two other prophets in his name as part of his prophetic legacy, but both chapters 14 and 30 are from the earlier part of the book, and so prima facie, these references to flying snakes would have been several hundred years earlier than Herodotus. But even the Bible mentions the flying snakes. However, what precisely Isaiah means is something we'll discuss under the faith perspective. And before we get to the faith perspective, we'd like to take a moment to thank our patrons who make this show possible, including Mitch G, Michael S, Christina F, Cecilia C, and Paul V. Their generous d- donations at sqpn.com give make it possible for us to continue Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World and all the shows at StarQuest. And you can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Yakin's Mysterious World is also brought to you in part by Rosary Army, featuring award-winning Catholic podcasts, rosary resources, videos, and the School of Mary online community, prayer, and learning platform. Learn how to make them, pray them, and give them away while growing in your faith at rosaryarmy.com and schoolofmary.com. And by Tim Shevlin's personal fitness training for Catholics, providing spiritual and physical wellness programs and daily accountability check-ins. Strengthen yourself to help further God's kingdom. Work out for the right reason with the right mindset. Learn more by visiting fitcatholics.com. So, Jimmy, what theories are there about the flying snakes? To determine whether Herodotus's account of the flying snakes is based on any real animal, we need to consider what animal that may have been. And there have been multiple proposals, including some kind of insects like locusts or dragonflies, some kind of arthropod like scorpions, some kind of bat, some kind of lizard, some kind of snake, or it could be something else entirely. 
First, though, we'll need to talk about the flying snakes from the faith perspective. Okay, so what do we need to say about the flying snakes from the faith perspective? We need to talk about an objection that someone could raise to Isaiah's description of the flying snakes. In the two passages we quoted, the translation referred to flying fiery serpents. The word fiery is added by the translators. It's not there in the Hebrew, but it's not completely unreasonable. In Hebrew, the word translated fiery serpent is saraf, and it's related to a verb that is also pronounced saraf. The verb means to burn, and one of the words for fire is serefa. So you could translate the word saraf as burning one. And snakes can sometimes be described as fiery because of their venom. When they bite you, it can burn. And so they can be described as fiery because of their bite. So fiery serpent is not a bad translation. It, it could mean something like venomous serpent. However, the word seraph is more familiar to many people in its plural form. Plurals are really easy in Hebrew. If it's a feminine noun, you make it a plural by adding the syllable ot. And if it's a masculine noun, you make it a plural by adding the syllable im. Seraph is a masculine noun, so the plural of seraph is seraphim, and that's a word lots of people know because seraphim are a kind of angel. In fact, we read about them earlier in Isaiah chapter 6 in Isaiah's commissioning vision. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory, and the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Here, the translators don't bring the word seraphim into English as, or seraphim, into English as snakes. Instead, they leave it untranslated as seraphim because people aren't used to thinking of angels as snakes. They also weren't used to thinking of snakes as having wings. And based on the English translation, you might think that there's a good reason not to translate it as snakes here, because it refers to the seraphim as flying with two of their wings covering their feet. It also refers to one of the seraphim having a hand that he used to carry a coal to touch Isaiah's lips with. but. Despite these facts, scholars are increasingly of the view that the kind of angel Isaiah was seeing here was serpentine or snake-like in form. Why would that be if, if they have hands and feet? One of the reasons has to do with etymology or word origins. As we mentioned, the word seraph could be translated burning one based on its etymology, and venomous snakes were often described as burning ones because of how much their venom hurt. Also, the term seraph is applied to snakes in Scripture. 
For example, in Numbers 21, we read, Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. Here, the term for fiery serpents is Srafim Hanhashim, which literally does mean burning serpent. And in the two passages we heard earlier, where Isaiah refers to a seraph, it also gets translated as burning serpent. In both cases, both in chapter 14 and in chapter 30, these creatures are paired with adders or vipers, which are kinds of snakes. In Isaiah 14, we heard, From the serpent's root will come forth an adder, and its fruit will be a flying, fiery serpent. And in chapter 30, we heard, The adder and the flying, fiery serpent. So, in both cases, the seraphim were associated with known snakes. And scholars have generally concluded that the seraphim in these passages are references to venomous snakes. That leaves us with the question of why the seraphim in Isaiah 6 have hands and feet as well as wings, but that's fairly easily explained. In the first place, we're dealing with a vision, and in visions, we often see symbolic representations of creatures that combine elements of different creatures. For example, over in Ezekiel 1, the prophet sees the cherubim, and they have four faces, one of a human, one of a lion, one of an ox, and one of an eagle. So they combine elements of different creatures, and in the same way, it's possible that back in Isaiah, the seraphim are basically meant to be snake-like, but with added hands and feet and wings. I understand that there's another possible interpretation that has to do with the seraphim's feet. What is that? Well, the Hebrew word for feet, ragle, doesn't just have its literal meaning of feet. It's a euphemism for um, one's private parts. And a lot of scholars think that it has that meaning here. So. Of the six wings the seraphim has, two are used for the ordinary function of flying, two are used to cover their faces and shield them from the glory of God, and two are used to cover their private parts so that they're modest in God's presence. This interpretation makes a lot of sense, and it corresponds with other things we know. For example, when Moses sees the burning bush in Exodus 3, he's told to take his sandals off because the ground he's covering, the ground he's standing on, is holy. So he's supposed to uncover his feet in God's presence, not cover them up. Also, Jewish priests had to wear undergarments under their robes to keep their private parts from being exposed to the holy ground they were walking on. And they weren't supposed to go up to the altar on steps, because that also could expose their private parts to the holy steps that were part of the altar structure. So there's a strong emphasis on modesty in God's presence. And I think the interpretation of the seraphim's wings here is a plausible one. The seraphim are being modest in God's presence, doing what they're doing with two weeks to keep their feet covered. Do we have other background that could help us clarify what the seraphim were supposed to look like? We do, and it comes from Egypt, uh, which had a big influence on the Israelites before the Exodus, and which we discussed back in episode 166 on whether the Exodus happened. And Egypt continued to have a major influence on Israel after the Exodus, because 
it was the ancient superpower right next door to Israel. So there were lots of cultural influences on Israel coming from Egypt. At this point, I want to say thank you to the Egyptologist Dr. David Falk, who has a YouTube channel called Ancient Egypt and the Bible. He has a video on the Seraphim, and he gave me permission to use clips from it. One of the things he notes is the connection between the Seraphim and fire. Not only does their name mean the burning ones, you'll also recall that one of them takes a burning coal and touches it to Isaiah's lips. So bear that in mind. In this passage, the prophet Isaiah sees the Lord sitting on a throne in his temple, and seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. And we can see from this that this passage is referring to the seraphim in anthropomorphic terms, as if they're sort of these semi-human anthropoid beings. And in verse 6, the seraphim selects a burning coal from the altar with tongs, picks it up with his hand, and touches the lips of Isaiah with a hot coal. So the, the image you're getting is that the seraphim is taking a pair of tongs, grabbing the coal, holding it in his bare hand, and then touching it on Isaiah's lips. Thus, we see from the biblical text that the seraphim is actually a kind of fire spirit, having snake-like attributes and the ability to fly. Now, while the biblical evidence for seraphim is limited, we are fortunate that evidence for seraphim is augmented by analogous symbols. We also have in Egyptian iconography a fiery snake being also one of the icons uh, that purified things of uncleanness, which was called the Uraeus. The Uraeus was a cobra goddess that was often paired alongside the winged goddess or cherubim. The Uraeus was most commonly placed along the frieze of architectural elements such as a temple tomb walls, kiosks, beers, coffins, and sacred furniture. It was normally placed in a repetitive pattern surrounding the sacred space and facing outward from it. And the placement was at the top of the architectural element. Hence, like the seraphim in Isaiah 6-2, the arrays we find in Egyptian iconography were set above whatever they were tasked to protect. Now, the function of the Uraeus was to keep impurity out of sacred space by blasting it with fire that it spat out. We read, for example, in Pyramid Text 256, quote, The flaming blast of my Uraeus is that of Ernutet, who is upon me, end quote. The earliest examples of the Uraeus that we find in Egyptian archaeology were found in an Egyptian mortuary temple of Zoser at Saqqara. Now, this dates all the way back to Dynasty III, but the use of the Uraeus in Egyptian iconography continues into the Roman period. So it has a very, very long history. The Uraeus is also shown as a cobra with wings as well. And this appears to be the imagery that enters into Hebrew thought when they consider the seraphim. 
overall, just as fire itself was seen as something that purified, the seraphim used their abilities as fire spirits to prevent defilement from entering into a sacred place. So while the cherubim purified space from within the confines of its wings, the job of the seraphim was to drive out impurity before it ever entered that space in the first place. And all that fits well with what Isaiah is seeing in his vision. In Egyptian iconography, uraeuses were snake-like figures that sat above sacred spaces. They would guard the sacred spaces, and they would use fire to purify things approaching the sacred spaces. Now, angels don't actually have a physical form, but with that as cultural background in his imagination, Isaiah pictured the seraphim as standing above the presence of God. They're guarding the presence of God, and they use fire, the hot coal, to purify Isaiah as he's in the space made sacred by God's presence. Can we use Egyptian art to get more of a sense of how Isaiah would have visualized the seraphim? Potentially, we can't be sure of the exact details, so we shouldn't put too much weight in this, but there are similarities between what we see in Egyptian art and what Isaiah may have been visualizing. For example, Isaiah sees the seraphim with wings. Well, Uraeuses were sometimes, though by no means always, depicted with wings. Sometimes they're even depicted with multiple sets of wings. I'm specifically aware of depictions of Uraeuses that have four wings, though I'm not familiar with any that have the full six that Isaiah's seraphim do. Normally, Uraeuses have snake heads that are based on the heads of cobras, but you will sometimes see winged Uraeuses that have human heads. So this influential cultural background may give us some idea of what the seraphim looked like that were guarding God's presence in Isaiah's vision. It can be a little creepy to think of snake-like angels as God's heavenly guardsmen. Yeah, in the Christian imagination, the image of the serpent has become so associated with the devil that it can be creepy. But the explicit association with the serpent and the devil wasn't made until the book of Revelation was written in AD 68, so 800 years after Isaiah's time. And we shouldn't think like modern Christians when reading a book like Isaiah. We need to think like ancient Israelites and the way their cultural imagination worked. Also, because of the venom, snakes can be seen as powerful and scary, which would make them good guardian figures. I mean, God is the greatest king, so he's going to have the most fearsome guards for his throne room. He's not going to have a bunch of wimpy, effeminate guards, but terrifying beings guarding his throne, creatures you never want to approach. So the burning ones, serpent-like angelic guards, would be appropriate to the ancient Israelite imagination. And who knows, the seraphim could be one of the conceptual links reinforcing the connection between the serpent of Eden and the devil or dragon of Revelation. Maybe one of the things reinforcing that identification is the fact that the devil used to be an angel, and some angels are depicted as snake-like. If that deals with the seraphim in Isaiah's commissioning vision in Isaiah 6, does it shed any light on his references to the flying snakes in chapters 14 and 30? 
Perhaps some, but we need to be sensitive to the fact that words can mean more than one thing. Isaiah obviously knew the difference between an angel and a snake. He's obviously talking about angels or heavenly beings in his vision in chapter 6 because they're surrounding God's throne in his temple. They also talk and sing, holy, 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 which literal snakes don't do. But the situation is different in Isaiah chapters 14 and 30. There, Isaiah is prophesying judgment on people. And in chapter 14, he tells the Philistines that the rod that struck you in judgment is broken. Then, based on the fact that snakes look like rods, he says not to rejoice because from the serpent's root will come forth an adder, another kind of snake, and its fruit will be a flying fiery serpent. So, he's not talking about literal flying snakes. Instead, he's referring to a judgment that will come upon the Philistines, and the judgment will feel like being attacked by a flying snake. So the snake is a symbol here. Then in chapter 30, Isaiah is warning not to make a political alliance with Egypt. And in the process of doing so, he describes the Negev, the southern part of Israel that has a border with Egypt. It's a dry, deserted region. In fact, the name Negev means desert. And to communicate how harsh the conditions are there, Isaiah even refers to it as a place inhabited by lionesses and lions and by adders and flying snakes. But this is a poetic passage, and the reference to flying snakes could just be poetry. Using flying snakes as an image, uh, a kind of capstone to the harshness of the place. You know, a flying snake would be the worst kind of snake. So he mentions the adders first, and then he mentions the even more dreaded flying snakes, whether that's meant literally or symbolically, a flying snake would definitely be worse than a regular one. Just as Isaiah mentioned lionesses first and then lions, with male lions being more powerful and dangerous than female ones. So we see building images that progressively use more dangerous animals. First, female lions, then the more fearsome male ones, first adders, then the more fearsome flying snakes. Because of the poetry involved in this passage, we can't say with confidence that Isaiah literally thinks that there are flying snakes in the Negev, but we can say that at least on the level of proverb and folklore, the Negev was so harsh that people pictured flying snakes as living there, whether that's literally true or not, is something we have to turn to the reason perspective to determine. Okay, so what can we say about Herodotus's flying snakes from the reason perspective? What things do we need to consider here? Basically, we have two kinds of evidence from Herodotus. First, there is the big collection of bones that he saw with his own eyes. He understood these to be the bones of flying snakes. And because he saw them with his own eyes, this is eyewitness testimony. He may or may not have been right about what he was seeing, but he saw something that we need to explain. This isn't just folklore and rumor. And second, there's what he was told by Arabs and Egyptians about the flying snakes and what could explain what they said. Then with those pieces of evidence in mind, let's look at the different theories that have been proposed to explain the flying snakes. You said that some people have proposed insects like locusts or dragonflies. Why would people propose that? Well, a number of ancient writers describe venomous flying snakes coming to Egypt in great swarms, which were then attacked by ibises. Well, 
insects like locusts do come in great swarms. Uh, They do have four wings and birds do attack and eat the insects. Also, dragonflies have a long body with four wings. They do sometimes swarm and they could look kind of like a little flying snake with that long body. Uh, Birds also eat them. Adrian Mayer writes, Another appealing explanation is that the creatures referred to as small flying serpents in Herodotus's account were really some sort of large-winged insect, such as dragonflies or locusts, which have long bodies and four membranous wings, as depicted on some Uraeus serpents and Hebrew seals. This explanation could also account for the behavior of and sounds made by the flying creatures that frequented the lake where Cassia grew. Herodotus's flying snake story might well have originated as garbled or exaggerated lore based on hearsay or observations of large swarms of flying insects. In fact, periodically, millions of desert locusts migrate across the Sinai, and the hordes of locusts would be prey for birds, especially flocks of ibises. The flying locusts are just over two inches long, but they migrate in massive clouds covering hundreds of miles. Several other ancient authors writing in the centuries after Herodotus also described flying snakes devoured by ibises in the region, and their accounts strongly evoke invasions of clouds of locusts. All these reports confirm that ibises preyed on periodic swarms of small flying creatures that behaved like migrating insects. While this theory is possible, I find a few difficulties with it. Uh, First, the Egyptians knew perfectly well what locusts and insects like dragonflies are. In fact, locusts were a major threat to their crops, like the plague of locusts in Exodus. So why would some Egyptians at least confuse locust, a familiar insect, with flying snakes? Also, the historians who mention these swarms also mention them being venomous snakes, and neither locusts nor dragonflies are venomous. So that's another point of dissimilarity to the report. Uh, Thus, while I can't completely rule out this explanation, I don't think it's especially promising, at least not on its own. We should look at other theories and see if they might better explain the data and only come back to this one if they don't. What about the proposal that the flying snakes should be explained by some kind of arthropod like scorpions? Well, many scorpions are venomous, so that would fit the ancient author's descriptions. Also, scorpions are very common in Egypt, and they can be said to swarm, so that matches. Further, scorpions don't lay eggs. Instead, they give birth to live young, just like Herodotus says he was told the flying snakes do. A difficulty for this proposal is that scorpions do not have wings and do not fly. However, there has been a proposal to explain this. Adrian Mayer writes, As noted, Snakes and scorpions in the Arabian desert give birth to live young, which matches some details that were related to Herodotus. Could scorpions have influenced the tales of small flying snakes? Scorpions do not fly, but many ancient authors consistently referred to winged varieties of scorpions. And winged scorpions are also depicted in ancient artifacts. The Roman natural historian Pliny the Elder explained the error. Scorpions are given the power of flight by very strong desert winds, he said, and when they are airborne, the arthropods extend their legs, which makes them appear to have wings. A swarm of wind-blown scorpions in a dust storm might give an impression of flying snakes. Some ibises prey on scorpions. 
So this is another possible theory, but still I don't think it's particularly promising for the simple reason that Egyptians and Arabians knew all about scorpions. Um, They had to deal with them all the time, and so I don't think it's particularly likely that some would think of scorpions as flying snakes. Another proposal was that some kind of bat was the basis of the flying snake stories. What do you make of that? Well, they do have bats in Egypt. In fact, the bats often use abandoned pyramids and other open tombs as their bat caves. In fact, there's even a small microbat species known as the Egyptian tomb bat because of where it likes to live. And in the video version of the podcast, we'll have an image of a bunch of bats inside the famous bent pyramid of Dashur. You know, it's a picture with shot looking up at the ceiling of the bent pyramid in a particular room. And there are just a bunch of bats hanging from the ceiling up there. And of course, bats can swarm, particularly when they're entering or leaving their caves. And Herodotus said that the wings of the flying snakes did not have feathers. Instead, he expressly compared them to the wings of bats. And he said that they were found around frankincense trees in Arabia. Well, Adrian Mayer writes, Herodotus likened the flying creatures in the region of frankincense and cassia to bats, a species of small vesper bat, the desert long-eared bat, inhabits extremely arid, hot, barren deserts and shrublands of Arabia and the Negev Desert, now southern Israel. About two to three inches in size, the gray and white microbats feed on poisonous scorpions and spiders on the ground. The tiny bats roost in rocky crevices. Their flight is described as awkward, slow, and floppy. Ibises eat insects and small mammals, and so might attack microbats hunting on the ground. There are also reports that birds and bats compete for similar prey in some locales. Could misunderstood descriptions of swarms of desert microbats help explain tales of small bat-winged snakes with variegated markings? So this is another one that is possible, but notice that the details don't match precisely. Herodotus says that he was told that the flying snakes guarded the frankincense trees, which would suggest that they were living in them, not that they lived in rocky crevices like the microbats. Also, note the speculation that ibises might attack microbats that were hunting on the ground, but this doesn't appear to be documented behavior. Finally, Herodotus and his informants knew what bats were. That's the basis of his ability to compare the wings of flying snakes to the wings of bats. So they clearly knew what bats were, and they said the flying snakes were something different. I thus see this as a possible theory, but not a particularly promising one. What about the idea that it was some kind of lizard that was responsible? Lizards are more like snakes than locusts, dragonflies, or bats, so that's promising. However, lizards don't tend to swarm, so that's less promising. I don't want to put too much emphasis on the swarming, though, because Herodotus doesn't report that. He says they fly from Arabia to Egypt in early spring. He doesn't say that they swarm. That's just something mentioned in passing by other writers, some of whom may have been influenced by and misread Herodotus. A key question is, are there any lizards that look like they fly? Do any of them have things you could consider wings? And the answer is yes. 
This lizard's name is Draco Volans, which is Latin for flying dragon. It has ribs that it can stick out and create flaps of skin that look like wings and that it can use to glide or parachute through the air. And it's really impressive when you watch them do that. Also, if you see one from the side, its arms and legs aren't noticeable and it looks like a flying snake. But there's a serious problem with this explanation, and that is that Draco Volans doesn't live anywhere near Egypt or Arabia. Instead, it lives in tropical rainforests in Southeast Asia. It runs along tree branches, then it leaps off, sticks out its ribs, and glides between trees. Well, needless to say, they don't have rainforests either in Egypt or Saudi Arabia. So as cool as the flying dragon is, this isn't a good explanation for what Herodotus saw and was told. What about snakes? Are there any kind of snakes that could serve as a basis for the accounts? Well, let's start by saying that there's one kind of snake that can be considered a flying snake. Uh, the scientific name of its genus is Chrysopelia. There are several species, and they are commonly called flying snakes, sometimes gliding snakes. Here's an explainer from Worldwide Video Bible School. First, the snake has special scales, and they've got little ridges on them. And these ridges are known as keels. Using its ridged scales, a flying snake can push against a tree trunk and climb to the highest branches. And when it gets there, in this tree very high up where these snakes spend much of their time, sometimes it wants to go to a tree or something further away. And so in order to do that, it finds a suitable branch, slithers to the end of it, and basically launches itself, almost like jumping off of the limb. Now, once it is in the air, the flying snake sucks in its belly and flares out its sides. And then it moves its body back and forth, almost like it's swimming, but in midair. So how does this help the snake? Well, it helps it by drawing the middle of its body up and spreading out its sides. It forms an air pocket along the underside of its stomach. You can see a similar design in a flying disc like a frisbee that has a concave shape where the sides dip down further than the middle of the disc, leaving a lip on the underside of the edge. The slithering motion in the air, well, it also helps control airflow and it helps the snakes control where they land. And if you want to get technical, flying snakes, they don't really fly. They can't really gain altitude. Actually, it would be better if you called them gliding snakes, but flying snakes is a little more exciting. It just so happens, however, that when we talk about them gliding, they're very good gliders. Even though they don't have limbs like flying squirrels do, they are more efficient than most all of the flying mammals. In fact, some flying snakes can glide as far as 300 feet in one flight. That is the entire length of a football field. Can you imagine seeing a snake launch itself from a limb on one end of a football field at the goal line and end up all the way at the other end? Wow, that's pretty impressive. It's no wonder we call them flying snakes. And it re is really impressive and really cool. Now, this type of flying snake doesn't actually have wings. Instead, they flatten their bodies to catch the air currents. But 
you can imagine how, upon hearing reports of these snakes, people might add wings as part of the folklore. After all, flying things normally have wings, whether it's birds, bats, or insects. So if you're hearing about flying snakes, it would be normal to assume that they have wings, and that could enter the folklore that Herodotus heard. However, as much as I'd love these flying snakes to be the explanation for what Herodotus heard, I don't think they are, because there's a problem. And as we just heard, they crawl up into trees and then launch themselves to other trees, meaning that they're forest dwellers, and they don't have forests in Egypt or Arabia. Actually, these snakes are native to Southeast Asia, in places like India and Indonesia. In fact, they live in the same territory as the flying lizards, and they sometimes hunt the flying lizards who use their flying abilities to get away from them. So, these aren't a good candidate for what Herodotus heard, however cool they are. Are there any snakes in the region of Egypt and Arabia that could explain the accounts we're looking at? Actually, yes, though they're not quite as impressive. Uh, first, there are cobras. Cobras do something similar to the flying lizards and flying snakes. Uh, cobras are a kind of snake, and like the flying lizards and flying snakes of Southeast Asia, they have ribs that they can extend, except these ribs are up close to their heads and they can fan out these ribs, creating folds of skin on each side of their head. In English, we refer to these folds of skin as a cobra's hood, but they also look kind of like wings. Uh, when the cobra spreads out the two sides of its hood, it looks like it's spreading wings. Adrian Mayer writes, Notably, cobras spread their neck ribs as a defensive posture, perhaps giving rise to an idea of wings. And so maybe the causal arrow pointed the other way. Instead of flying or gliding snakes giving rise to a folk belief that they had wings, maybe the image of cobras seeming to spread wings led to the folk belief that some of them could fly. Mayer continues, The locale, Buto, where Herodotus went to investigate the flying snakes, provides an important clue. Herodotus tells us that Buto was famous for its temple and the oracle of the winged cobra goddess Wajit. Wajit was known to the Greeks as Buto, and in Herodotus's day, the region was called the land of Wajit or Buto. The temple of Buto was known to the Egyptians as Perwajit or House of Wajit. Notably, Wajit's symbol was a cobra, typically pictured with wings. The winged cobra symbol can be seen on the Uraeus crown worn by Egyptian gods and rulers. Many fabulous golden neck pieces and other artifacts depicting winged cobras have been found in Egyptian tombs, and the image appears widely in paintings, reliefs, amulets, and ornaments. The ubiquitous iconography of snakes with wings would be quite striking to visitors in ancient Egypt it seems safe to assume that Herodotus decided to travel to Buto to ask about flying snakes because the region was the sacred abode of the winged cobra goddess. The winged Uraeus, an image of a rearing cobra with two, sometimes four, wings, was a popular motif in Egypt, but it also appeared in the Near East and the Bronze Age. The four-winged version is featured on numerous seals in 8th century BC Judah. And the 8th century BC is when Isaiah lived, so maybe it was these Egyptian hooded cobra images with four wings that influenced his vision of the seraphim. 
And in any event, the wings of the cobra's hood may have led to the idea of flying snakes. And after a long folk process, uh, that could be what was at the root of what Herodotus was told. Are there any other snakes in Egypt besides cobras that could have been the basis of these accounts? Yes, uh, Adrian Mayer writes, Herpetologists, or those who study amphibians and reptiles, note that the horned viper, Serastes Serastes, of Egypt and Arabia, sometimes flings itself into the air to attack. The Greek philosopher Strabo mentioned that in southern Arabia, where frankincense is gathered, dark red venomous snakes identified as the saw scale or painted carpet viper can spring up a few feet in the air to strike. These activities could also fuel the notion of airborne snakes. So maybe it wasn't snakes flying or gliding, but snakes leaping into the air that inspired these accounts. This is a real possibility, though at present it's still only a possibility. Thus far, we've been looking at what could explain the accounts of flying snakes that Herodotus heard. But what about the enormous collection of bones that he saw with his own eyes? What could he explain that? It's certainly possible that the people near Bhutto, Egypt, took Herodotus out into the desert and showed him a big pile of ordinary bones of some sort. But these bones needed to at least look like they could be the bones of flying snakes, which is what he took them to be. However, there's also another possibility besides ordinary bones. Uh, thus far, we've been quoting from the historian Adrian Mayer and her book, Flying Snakes and Griffin Claws. But in her earlier book, The First Fossil Hunters, she discusses the way ancient people found fossils of prehistoric animals, and she makes an interesting suggestion. When Herodotus traveled to Egypt, he heard tales of flying reptiles or dragons with membraned wings. Seeking proof, he made a special trip to the vicinity of Bhutto, whose location is unknown. In a narrow pass opening to the desert, Egyptian guides showed him bones and spines in incalculable numbers piled in heaps, some big and some small. This passage is one of the most cryptic in Herodotus. Classicists and cryptozoologists have long puzzled over what he saw and where. A horde of dead locusts, parachuting lizards, pterosaur fossils. All these possibilities have been proposed. Given that Herodotus was shown skeletons and not living specimens, it's worth considering what kind of fossils exist in Egypt. Could the tales of winged reptiles have been based on attempts to restore the remains of pterosaurs or even spinosaurid dinosaurs? Spinosaurs were large Cretaceous reptiles with a dorsal array of membrane spines. Bhutto is thought to be east of the Nile, while spinosaurs are known only in western Egypt. But this would match the later Roman writer Cicero's statement that winged reptiles occurred in the western desert. Whatever they were, the myriad spines and bones that Herodotus saw may have been fossil remains collected and placed at a shrine by the Egyptians. His description recalls the tons of fossilized bones that archaeologists found heaped at two ancient shrines along the Nile. So maybe, just like dinosaur bones are apparently the basis of dragon legends in multiple cultures, maybe fossils were the large collection of bones that Herodotus was shown, and they were the basis of the folk accounts of flying snakes. In The First Fossil Hunters, Adrian Mayer only devoted a couple of paragraphs to this possibility, but she didn't explore it at length. Has there been any follow-up on the subject? 
There has by a scholar named Karen Radner, and she and Adrian Mayer have exchanged views in the literature. Now, I'm a huge fan of Adrian Mayer. I really love her stuff. And the exchange between the two is all very academic and polite, but the two of them have made different proposals, which from a scholarly perspective creates a kind of mortal combat like let them fight, let them fight atmosphere. I know I was energized in reading their responses to each other. Then what was round one in their confrontation between the two? It occurred in 2007 when Karen Radner published an essay called Winged Snakes in Arabia and the Fossil Site of Mahtesh Ramon in the Negev. We'll have a link to it so you can read it for yourself. In the paper, she notes that we appear to have an account of a second group of people besides Herodotus and his escorts who also may have seen the bones of the flying snakes. And this can potentially give us more information about where they were, which could let us follow up and figure out what the bones actually were of. The expedition that mentions them occurs during the reign of King Esarhaddon, who was uh, the ruler of the Neo-Assyrian Empire. So he was both the king of Assyria and the king of Babylon, which had been conquered by Assyria at this point. Esarhaddon lived in the 600s BC, so he's 200 years earlier than Herodotus and about 100 years later than Isaiah. And Esarhaddon is mentioned several times in the Bible. For example, he's mentioned in Isaiah 37, where we read, Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and returned home and lived at Nineveh. And as he was worshiping in the house of Nisroch, his god, Adramelech and Sherezer, his sons struck him down with the sword, and after they escaped into the land of Ararat, Esarhaddon, his son, reigned in his place. After Esarhaddon began to reign, he naturally kept archives of annals of his achievements, and Radner writes, That snakes similar to those described by Herodotus and many later classical writers are mentioned in a fragmentarily preserved clay tablet from Nineveh with a year-by-year account of Esarhaddon's military campaigns has been maintained by Assyriologists since the early days of the discipline. The specific campaign that we're interested in here is one that occurred in the year 671 BC. And here is Radner's reconstruction of what the clay tablet says about this expedition. According to the command of my lord Asher, an idea came to my mind, and I conceived the following. I mobilized the camels of all the kings of Arabia and loaded them with water skins and water containers. Twenty miles of land, a journey of fifteen days, I marched through mighty sand dunes. Four miles of land, I traveled over alum, musu stones, and other stones. Four miles of land, a journey of two days, I stepped repeatedly on two-headed snakes, whose touch is deadly, but continued. Four miles of land, a journey of two days, Yellow snakes spreading wings, but continued. Four miles of land, a journey of two days. In sum, 16 miles of land, a journey of eight days, I marched. 20 days, seven, of the border of Egypt, I set up a night camp. So this mentions Esarhaddon and his men encountering yellow snakes spreading wings. And because it gives us his travel itinerary, we can use the navigational data 
to figure out approximately where he was when he encountered them. I won't go through all the details of this calculation. They're a bit involved in including the fact that the miles referred to here are not modern miles. But Ratner considers some possible sites and eventually identifies her candidate for where Esarhaddon and later Herodotus went. A far better candidate for identification with the bones of the winged snakes is the rich fossil deposit inside the crater of Machtesh Ramon in Israel, about 85 kilometers south of Beersheba. Machtesh Ramon, also known as Machtesh Gadol, or under its Arabic name, Wadi Ruman, is a large erosional crater of a length of about 35 kilometers and a width of between 2 and 9 kilometers, surrounded by steep walls of a height of about 400 meters. And it has justly been described as a laboratory of nature. When the creation of the Arva Rift Valley changed the course of the rivers of the region about 5 million years ago, the watercourse of Nahal Ramon began to carve out the inside of the crater by erosion. And as the wadi deepened, more and more geological strata were uncovered. Its exposed rock sequence ranges from the Middle Triassic to the Cenomanian Age and contains rich fossil assemblages. Machtesh Ramon is situated at the transition from the central Negev highlands to the southern Negev in the boundary zone between steppe and desert. In antiquity, it was well connected to the international road and trade network and an important station of the frankincense route, or spice route, as it is also called. And notice that Herodotus also connected the flying snakes to the frankincense trade, and they've got tons of fossils there. Of the fossils of Machtesh Ramon, the spiral ammonites in various sizes are more obvious to the modern visitor, with diameters of a centimeter to more than a meter and openly visible and accessible on the surface of the hillsides of the crater at eyes level height. This has sadly led to major damage as a result of the last decade's increased tourist activity. Higher up on the hillsides, richer vertebrate fossil assemblages can be found, such as the remains of various Sauropterygia and amphibians. It should be noted that these fossils are easy to spot as the cream-colored rock sets off the darker bones. When Ezra Haddon's account speaks of yellow snakes, this description can easily be reconciled with the color of the fossils of Machtesh Ramon. And that's definitely true if you see pictures of the place. For those watching the video version of the podcast, we'll put up a picture of a spiral ammonite fossil from Machtesh Ramon. And you can see that it does indeed look light brownish yellow in color. Esser Haddon never says whether the yellow snakes with spreading wings that he saw were alive or dead, but if he was looking at these fossilized bones, he would certainly describe them as yellow, or could anyway. Also, note that Herodotus says that he saw a huge bunch of bones of different sizes. And that's exactly what the fossils at Machtesh Ramon are like. Ratner then tries to identify the specific kind of fossil that Esarhaddon and Herodotus may have thought to be flying snakes. For us, the most relevant published collection of fossils are the amphibian remains which, to a layman's eye, indeed resemble snakes with wings, fossils of long-bodied salamanders, Ramonellus longispinus, different frog species, and their tadpoles, 
were openly visible at the so-called Amphibian Hill in the southeast of the crater, and have been scientifically excavated and studied. I propose to identify Machtesh Ramon as the site to which the accounts about winged snakes of Ezarhaddon and Herodotus refer. Herodotus's description of the site as where a narrow mountain pass opens into a great plain, which is joined to the plain of Egypt, matches the fact that the known path leads through a cramped pass from the Negev highlands down into the crater, descending more than 400 meters into a plain that is part of the Negev desert, the Sinai's eastern extension. Its geographical position fits both sources and makes good sense as a part of Ezarhaddon's itinerary from Rapihu to Egypt. Moreover, Machtesh Ramon features visible remains of innumerable bones and backbones of vertebrate fossils, great and small and smaller still, some of which, especially Ramanellus longispinus, a salamander with a very elongated snake-like body, indeed evoke the idea of winged snakes. So all that sounds very promising. And in her article, Radner includes a couple of black and white photographs of the long-bodied salamander fossils. When you look at them, they do have really long spines that are attached to heads, and they really do look like snakes unless you're studying them closely. However, their arms, ribs, or deformations in the rock could make them look like they have wings. And so they're a possible candidate for the bones of winged snakes that Herodotus reported. This does sound very promising, but we need to go back into the academic mortal combat and let them fight. <laughs> has Adrian Mayer responded to Karen Radner's proposal? She has. In her 2022 book, Flying Snakes and Griffin Claws, she's very polite to Radner and says her proposal is worth considering. But then she writes, The location of Machtesh Ramon matches the itinerary of Ezarhaddon as he set out across the Negev for Egypt, and it may be the place of yellow snakes spreading wings. But the unique landform in the center of Palestine lies about 400 miles east of Bhutto, where Herodotus sought information about flying snakes. Herodotus clearly states that he personally observed heaps of vertebrae, as enticing as Radner's proposal is, unfortunately the geography makes it implausible that Herodotus trekked across the daunting Arabian and Negev deserts and back. So, Mayer says that Radner may indeed have identified the location where S.R. Haddon saw yellow snakes spreading wings. She may well be right about that. But Mayer says she's probably not right about this being the location that Herodotus saw. Let's refresh our memory of what Herodotus said about this location. He wrote, I went to the part of Arabia fairly near the city of Bhutto to find out about winged snakes. When I got there, I saw countless snake bones and spines. There were heaps and heaps of spines there, large, medium-sized, and smaller ones. The place where all these backbones are scattered about on the ground is a narrow pass linking hills to a great plain which joins the Egyptian plain. So Herodotus says he went to a location barely near the city of Bhutto, and when I got there, I saw the bones. In her essay, Radner tries to disconnect this site from Bhutto. She says, The reason why Herodotus connects Bhutto with his account about the winged snakes in the first place would appear to be associative. 
As it happens, that city's principal deity is the goddess Wajet, Uto, who was commonly depicted as a cobra, and sometimes even as a winged cobra. If a geographical connection with Buto was given only in a very general sense, what then can be gained from Herodotus's account in terms of historical geography? You can see what Radner is doing here. She regards Herodotus's reference to Buto as associative, meaning connected by topic rather than geography. She suggests that Herodotus went to Buto because of their patron cobra goddess, Wajit, and her argument depends on a geographical connection with Buto given only in a very general sense. But what Herodotus said is that he went to a location fairly near the city of Buto, and when I got there, he saw the bones. That's not an associative general reference to the city. Herodotus is saying he saw the bones near Buto. So I think Adrian Mayer is right, and Mahtesh Ramon probably was not the location that Herodotus saw because it isn't near Buto. Radner's site is 400 miles away, and 400 miles is a huge distance, especially in the ancient world. However, Radner very well may be correct that this was the place that Esarhaddon saw, and Herodotus may have seen fossilized bones that he was told were flying snakes. Here's what Adrian Mayer concludes about the subject. Note that in his investigation of the tale of flying snakes, Herodotus was never shown live specimens, only heaps of jumbled skeletons and spines of different sizes. One might suggest the following scenario. Egyptian and Arabic tales of flying serpents may have been a popular way of alluding to swarms of microbats, wind-borne scorpions, or periodic locust hordes. The illusion might have been taken literally when it was retold and translated in antiquity. When Herodotus asked his Egyptian guides about these creatures, the guides took him to view some mysterious deposits of bones, implying a link to the winged snakes. The jumbled bones may have been a fossil bed of unknown extinct creatures like the sites at Wadi Natron and Mahtesh Ramon. Another possibility is that Herodotus saw a large deposit of skeletal remains of present-day birds and other creatures, perhaps preserved over the years by desert minerals such as natron, weathering out the edges of the salt marshes, which are now obliterated by the Suez Canal. Without further information, the true identity of the winged snakes of ancient Arabia remains a tantalizing enigma, but it seems likely that the idea of flying snakes arose from folk descriptions of microbats, scorpions, and or migrating locusts as flying serpents elaborated with natural oddities of desert creatures. These details may have been elaborated in tall tales told by Arabian spice traders to discourage others from trying to gather costly perfumes. Exaggerated or garbled stories about little-known desert denizens, plus traders' stories, merged with the very real prevalence of dangerous snakes in Egypt and Arabia, and conflated with the widespread images of winged cobras sacred to the goddess Wajet in jewelry and art and pictured on Pharaoh's Uraeus crowns. Heaps of extraordinary vertebrae displayed to visitors like Herodotus would serve to confirm a story of bizarre fauna in the region. So Mayer opts for a composite solution where there isn't one 
single explanation for the flying snake account, but a combination of different factors leading to. So, Jimmy, what's your bottom line on the flying snakes? We have widespread accounts of flying snakes living in the general area of Egypt, the Israeli desert, and Arabia. And these accounts span centuries. Uh, We have Egyptian art of flying snakes that go back crazy far in history. In the 700s BC, we have Isaiah alluding to them being in the desert between Egypt and Israel, though it isn't clear that he means they literally exist. Um, In the 600 BCs, we have Esarhaddon mentioning seeing them. In the 400 BCs, uh, we have Herodotus mentioning the tales about them and also saying that he saw their bones. And we have multiple later writers mentioning them as well. With all these references, including people who actually saw something like Esarhaddon and Herodotus, I think we have a phenomenon that needs to be explained. However, as much as I like the actual flying snakes of the genus Chrysopelia to be the basis of these accounts, those snakes, which can glide really long distances that are the length of a football field, live over in Southeast Asia, not in the area we're talking about. And there don't seem to be any other living or extinct species of snake in the region that can glide such long distances. So I don't think they can be the explanation. Instead, the accounts may well be based on a variety of sources. These may include swarming creatures like locusts, dragonflies, scorpions, and bats. Uh, The sources also may have included Egyptian art that depicted spiritual beings like Uraeuses and Wajit as winged cobras. They may well have included actual snakes that lived in the region, like the Egyptian horned viper, among others, which do sometimes leap to attack. So if a snake leaped at you from a location above you, like a rocky ledge, you might well describe it as a flying snake. These snakes can move from the air, just move through the air, just not the long distances that Chrysopelia can. And finally, there may have been fossils in the area, including the fossils of Radner's long-bodied salamanders, that also contributed to the accounts. Also, there may have been deliberate exaggeration on the part of some of Herodotus's informants, such as Arab frankincense traders who wanted to keep the sources of the valuable substance to themselves and decided to keep outsiders at bay by telling them stories about dangerous flying snakes in the frankincense trees. I thus think that Adrian Mayer is likely right that we're looking at a composite solution to this mystery that relies on several different things. However, regardless of which our creatures are the basis of the accounts, let's give the last word to World Video Bible School. They're talking specifically about the flying snakes in Southeast Asia, but the same applies to all of God's creatures, both past and present, including whatever is behind the flying snakes of Herodotus and the Bible. We know that God is the grand designer who created the universe, and we can see a tiny piece of his awesome design when we study flying snakes. Let's always remember to praise the creator for all the super slithery soaring wonders he has made. Jimmy, anything else we should say before we go? I want to say a special thanks to David Falk. Uh, I I subscribe to his YouTube channel, Ancient Egypt and the Bible, and I encourage you to do so too. And what further resources can we offer to the listeners and viewers? We'll have a link to uh, Herodotus's book, The Histories, Adrian Mayer's book, Flying Snakes and Griffin Claws, Adrian Mayer's book, The First Fossil Hunters, 
Dinosaurs, Mammoths, and Myth in Greek and Roman Times. Also, Karen Radner's paper, The Winged Snakes of Arabia. Information about Herodotus, Horned Vipers, Ibises. Uh, we'll have a video of Bald Ibises and another one of Glossy Ibises. And also information about frankincense, how hares become pregnant while pregnant. Uh, David Falk's video, Exploring the Spirit World Seraphim. Info on the Egyptian tool bat, tomb bat, uh, Draco Volans, World Video Bible School on Flying Snakes, and a Cape Cobra spreading its hood in video. Excellent. So that's it from us this time. We would love to hear your theories about the flying snakes of Herodotus and the Bible. You can let us know by visiting sqpn.com or the Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World Facebook page sending us an email to feedback at mysterious.fm, sending a tweet to at mys underscore world, visiting the StarQuest Discord community at sqpn.com slash discord, or calling our mysterious feedback line at 619-738-4515. That's 619-738-4515. And I want to say a special word of thanks to Oasis Studio 7 for the video and animation work on this episode. You can see the kind of work they do, and you can hire them for yourself uh, to do your video and animation work. But you can see what they do by going to my channel, youtube.com slash Jimmy Aiken. And if you're one of our audio listeners and have never checked out the video version of the podcast, uh, please do go there and check it out and see how much the video adds to the experience. Once again, that's youtube.com slash Jimmy Aiken. We recently passed 40,000 subscribers to the channel. We're heading towards 50. That's our next goal. Really appreciate your help getting there. I am trying to grow my channel, so I'd appreciate it if you would subscribe and hit the bell notification so that you always get a notification when I put up a video, whether it's a Mysterious World video or one of the other videos that I do. Also, please hit the like button and leave a comment because that tells the YouTube algorithm that you liked the video, you engaged with it, and therefore it might be liked and engaged with by other people too, so you can help the show grow by liking and commenting as well as subscribing. So Jimmy, what's our next episode going to be about? Next week, we're going to be answering patrons' questions. So we're going to be talking about things like John Keel's Ultra Terrestrials, the book AA1025, Memoirs of an Anti-Apostle, whether Muhammad existed, pole shifts, who the beloved disciple in John's gospel was, the execution of Mary Surratt, the blood of St. Januarius, and more. Folks, be sure to follow Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, your favorite podcast app, or at Jimmy's YouTube channel, where you should, as he said, hit the bell to get notifications. You can find links to Jimmy's resources from our discussion on our show notes at mysterious.fm slash 273. And remember, to help us continue to produce the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World is also brought to you by Fairvento Law PLLC, now assisting clients with expungements and set-asides of Michigan convictions. To learn more, call 231-202-3321 or go to fearventolaw.com. F-I-O-R-V-E-N-T-O law.com. And by Deliver Contacts, offering honest pricing and reliable service for all your contact lens needs. See the difference at delivercontacts.com. Until next time, Jimmy Aiken, thank you for exploring with us our mysterious world. Thanks, Dom. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. 
Thank you for listening to Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World on StarQuest. If you've enjoyed Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World, you'll also enjoy another StarQuest Network show, PlayStation Portable. Find it wherever you can find podcasts or at sqpn.com slash PSP.